Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. The Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools and we're here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. When we talk about public education, we define it. We define it as public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is publicly accessible to all children, no matter what their background. And we're finding throughout the world that uh, there is more and more segregation, particularly when governments are boosting up private schools. We should also have publicly funded, sole public funding for our public education and our schools should be the built by the public and owned by the public. And our governments, if they were really democratic, governments would make sure that there was provision of a a very important and very, very good public education for every child in this country. Now, every week we have a press release for you, and this week it's Press Release 656, and it's on our website at www.adogs.info. International capital is wandering the world for a safe haven and public school councils should beware the charter school movement. This charter school movement has a different name in Australia. Mr Birmingham and Mr Pine have called it the independent public school movement. Now public school supporters and especially members of public school councils in Australia should beware hedge funds bearing gifts especially if recent developments in America are any guide. Birmingham and Turnbull are looking to the United Kingdom and America for models of privatisation. In an article in the American Prospect, and I've given you the uh, place you can go to get this article, on the 10th of May 2016, an American writer called Justin Miller warned of the unhealthy relationship between international capital wandering the world for safe haven profits, namely hedge funds, and the privatisation of public education through charter schools in the United States. In the United Kingdom, they are called academies. They're doing this through the use of testing, testing and more testing, competition and the takeover of school boards. Justin Miller argues that the hedge fund industry and the charter movement are almost inextricably entangled. Executives see charter school expansion as vital to the future of public education and they rely on a model of competition. 
They see testing as essential to accountability and they often look at teacher unions with unvarnished distaste. Several hedge fund managers have launched their own charter school chains. You'd be hard-pressed to find a hedge fund guy who doesn't sit on a charter school board in the United States. As one person commenting on the Justin Miller article noted, Government is not business and shouldn't be. When it's run that way, taxpayers are writing inflated cheques for the shittiest services and infrastructure the corporation can get away with providing. Tax money is not meant to profit anybody except taxpayers. Well, we all know that that is now very different. The following is an excerpt from the longer article for the information of readers. And dogs thank John Foster for sending it to us. Not too long ago, school board races were quaint affairs. Even in big school districts, candidates usually only had to raise a few thousand dollars to compete. But as the movement to marketise public education gained momentum, advocates broadened their focus from the federal level to state and local governments. There, where campaign costs were substantially lower than in federal elections, the well-funded movement could more effectively leverage its political money. One of the starkest casualties of that strategic shift has been the American School Board election. A network of education advocacy groups, heavily backed by hedge fund investors, has turned its political attention to the local level, with aspirations to stock school boards from Indianapolis and Minneapolis to Denver and Los Angeles with allies. In recent years, this powerful upstart operation has had tremendous, albeit somewhat stealthy, success playing politics at the local level by cultivating reform leaders in areas with disappointing schools and a baseline desire for change. They have looked to building a state philanthropic infrastructure that can sustain local efforts beyond one election. And the same big money donors and organisational names pop up in news reports and campaign finance filings, revealing the behind-the-scenes coordination across organisational, geographic and industrial lines. The origins arguably trace, trace back to the Democrats for Education Reform, which was a relatively obscure group which was founded by New York hedge funders in the mid-2000s. So what is this hedge fund connection that we're talking about? The hedge fund industry and the charter movement are almost inextricably entangled in the United States and their money is looking at Australia. Executives see charter school expansion as vital to the future of public education, relying on a model of competition. They see testing as essential to accountability and they often look at teacher unions, as we've noticed, with distaste. Now consider Whitney Tilson. He's straight out of Harvard, and Tilson deferred a consulting job in Boston to become one of the Teach for America's first employees in 1989. Ten years later, he started his own hedge fund in New York. 
And soon after that, Teach for America founder Wendy Kopp took him on a visit to a charter school in the South Bronx. It was an electrifying experience for him because he said it was so clearly different and such a place of joy, but also rigour, he claimed. Now, the school was one of the two original Knowledge is Power program schools, better known as KIPP, which has since grown into a prominent charter network with nearly 200 schools in 20 states plus the District of Columbia, serving almost 70,000 students and predominantly low-income and of colour. But back then, charter schools were still a rather unfamiliar novelty to most people. Tilson, however, was convinced that they were the future of education and he started dragging all his friends, most of whom were hedge fund investors, from Wall Street up to the South Bronx to see the KIPP school. KIPP was used as a converter for hedge fund guys, Tilson said. It went viral. Many critics of this corporate education reform movement are quick to accuse proponents of seeking to cash in on the privatisation of one of the United States' last public goods. And while there are certainly those in educational reform circles who stand to benefit from a windfall of new education technology, particularly in testing and curriculum services, hedge funders by and large don't always fit the stereotype. Sometimes they have an ideological and philanthropic crusade rather than a crude profit-seeking venture. But that doesn't mean to say that the profit-seeking is not there. They come almost exclusively from well-off backgrounds and have got the best educations themselves. Tilson says... I personally never knew what the situation was like for families forced to attend their local school in the South Bronx or Brooklyn. I didn't know of anyone who dropped out of high school or college, much less that there were high schools where half the students dropped off. So you have here a man who was shocked that anyone would try to stymie the growth of his charter schools because he claimed they had some promising signs of success early on. And he was even more shocked that it was mostly Democratic politicians who were opposed to the charter expansion. Why, he wondered, would the party that's supposed to be for the less well-off be standing in the way of educating disadvantaged children? And as a result, he attacked the unions as well as the Democratic Party. Our public school system, including charter schools, he claimed, is a government system and that means at the end of the day that it's run by politicians and politicians respond to votes and they respond to money. That means if you want to change a government system, he said, you've got to play the political game. Well, of course, we in Australia have heard all of this before because we've seen how um, the huge, huge, huge hedge fund, if you want to call it that, um, the Roman Catholic Church uh, has played politics in this country uh, in an effort to privatise our system. Now, who were the original funders of these hedge funds that wanted to take over the public system in the United States? It's chock-a-block full, the list, of Wall Street A-listers. 
Here's some of their names. Joel Greenblatt, who was the head of Gotham Asset Management and author of the seminal high finance book, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. (laughs) There's another man called Charles Ledley and James May of Cornwall Capital, who was perhaps the most well-known for betting big against the subprime mortgage market, which was depicted in the book-turned-blockbuster The Big Short. And there's also David Einhorn, head of Greenlight Capital, who's drawn scrutiny on more than one occasional occasion for downright financial wrongdoing. So you have here a very interesting development in the United States. And all of a sudden, because of their pressure, because it's big money that you're looking at here, there were politicians all over the country in the United States who were willing to back education reform because these hedge funds were able to raise more money than the local uh, governments could. And they claimed that there was also a lot more fields to play on. And as it found tremendous success at the federal level, uh, the charter school movement tried to maximise its newfound influence to leverage reform in local politics. Now, about 2010... The charter advocates in the United States set their sights on Indianapolis. And in 2011, the newly Republican state legislature passed a law that made it easier for new charter schools to open, quickly fueling their growth. And most new charters opened in Indianapolis, home to a struggling urban district that serves roughly 30,000 students. Many of the schools were failing to meet state standards and enrolment numbers were dwindling and the clamour for a solution was growing. At the epicentre of the city's reform push was the Mind Trust, which was a local education reform group that promotes more school choice, autonomy and charter partnerships. Does it sound familiar? To do those things, the district needed a friendly superintendent and a sympathetic school board, and the Mind Trust helped bring in DFER, the advocacy group, Stand for Children, and the network of political money that came with them. Now, Annie Roof was first elected to the Indianapolis Public Schools Board in 2010 because she was aspiring to bring a parents' perspective and substantive change to the school district. She herself was fed up with poor communication from the district and what she says were unfair school spending patterns. And she raised about $3,000 and she won a seat. So over there you've got to pay to get onto a public school board. At first, Roof, uh, that's Annie Roof, was the reform member on a board that featured a number of very strong supporters of the superintendent, Eugene White, who resisted integrating charter schools into the district. And then, in 2012, the school board elections brought in a whole new wave of people, and one was a person called Gail Cosby. She and her kids had attended the city's public schools and she'd taught in the district. Several months before the election, Cosby decided to run against a long-time incumbent for a seat on the district school board. 
And when she ran, she said, she felt pretty strongly about the idea of autonomy in a broad sense. And she felt as a teacher that a lot of what she wanted to achieve with her students was limited by a top-down feeling of control. Now, she was independently running her campaign for several months, trying to build a rapport with local voters, and then, as the election neared, her openness to reform attracted the attention of the charter school people, which had, and they had recently launched an Indiana chapter to build off the state's recent changes to public education law. And so they very quickly zeroed in on building a pro-charter majority on the school board. Now, they pumped more than $40,000 into Cosby's campaign and they hired her as a campaign manager and they orchestrated several direct mail flyer blasts and they bought up radio spots for her. And this was actually unheard of in Indianapolis school board races. And Cosby suddenly realised that at that point she felt a loss of control. The way they were able to win was through the money, through the messaging, she says, adding that about 10 mailers were sent on her behalf. Now that's a huge sum of money and that's pretty insurmountable when the public lacks understanding about the issues and the individual voter saw the potential for something shiny and new. Now at the end of the day they bankrolled her to the amount of $80,000. And two others, reform candidates who were put up by these charter school hedge fund people, uh, were elected with more than $60,000 in support. Before she was even sworn into her seat on the board, it became apparent that Cosby's idea of reform was very different to those of the charter school hedge funds. She and the other new board members were invited to what she describes as a secret meeting at an Indiana pharmaceutical company with major philanthropic initiatives. And the meeting featured a presentation pitching a plan to expand and fully integrate charter schools into the Indianapolis public school system. In other words, they were going to take over the public school system. Now, one of these new charter school reformers was a person called Caitlin Hannon, a Teach for America alumni who had taught in IPS for two years before she ran. And after she was elected to the board, she's one of these 60,000 people, dollar people. She became the executive director of Teach Plus Indianapolis, which was a Bill Gates-backed organisation that amplifies the voices of young reform-minded teachers, often at the expense of teacher unions. In 2013, the new school board bought out the superintendent's contract and began looking for a turnaround expert who prioritised charter school expansion, autonomy and innovation. And they chose a Lewis Ferebee, who had previously worked in the Durham, North Carolina public school district overseeing a number of struggling schools. And he very quickly unveiled a plan that would cut the size of the district administrative office and begin liquidating school buildings and renting out space to outside groups, including charters. And soon after, he was lobbying for a state bill that would allow 
the hedge funds and the charter school movement to form compacts with charter schools to operate autonomously within the district. And much to the dismay of many state Democrats and the state teacher unions, this bill passed. Now, there's more of this. There's more to this story because uh, the charter schools in some states in America have almost taken over. And there is a reaction setting in, particularly amongst public school supporters. But I'll leave it there because I think that we ought to be aware of the so-called models that Birmingham and Pine and Mr Turnbull are looking at when they want to have so-called autonomous, independent public schools. Well, there we are with America and the dangers of the charter school movement. And in previous weeks, we've been talking about the academies in England. Now, these developments can be stopped. We can stop the privatisation of our public education systems. And in England, there has been a big reaction and the government has dropped the plans there to make all schools in England into academies. But that doesn't mean to say that these so-called academies have gone away or that they are doing a good job or that all things are bright in, in England. But we'll talk about that a bit later because there are people with money there who are building schools um, in, in developments and they are private schools. But first of all, let's come back to Australia. Although you might not have noticed or you might want to not notice, there is an election on. And there is a question as to who you want to vote for if you are interested in public education. I have here uh, a list of all the things that the Greens think is rather good and they start off with saying that education is a public good and that is really quite a relief. But do you really want to vote for the Greens? What are they really, really uh, offering? What is the Labor Party offering? And what is the Coalition offering? The Coalition appears to be pretty good at giving with one hand what they have already taken away in much greater uh, amounts with the other. But I'm going to ask Michael to give you some information from the Guardian newspaper, uh, the Australian Guardian, that has looked at all of the different uh, parties and what they are offering the public school voter. According to the Guardian and Gabriella Chan, the Turnbull government has promised, according to them, the most significant package of education quality reforms in a generation, worth $73.6 billion, while Labor has promised a needs-based Your Child, Our Future plan, which adds another $3.8 billion. The Coalition's $73.6 billion figure sounds grand, but it is simply the total amount the Commonwealth gives to states for schools over four years. And most of that is given to the private schools. Yeah, that's true. It's the normal funding package minus the 2014 Abbott budget cuts. The cuts amounted to $30 billion over a decade from 2014. This election, the Coalition has promised an extra $1.2 billion top-up of needs-based funding over three years in 2018 to 2020. This will be delivered using state and territory assessments of the neediest schools as recommended by the Gonski Review. And there'll be a lot of testing yes. going on with that too. 
The coalition also attached conditions, including standardised year one school assessment of reading, phonics and numeracy skills, annual reports to parents on literacy and numeracy attainment against national standards, and a minimum standard of literacy and numeracy skills for year 12 school leavers. You would hope after 12 years they uh, that would be almost a guaranteed, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, you never know. Well, a lot of employers claim that, that, yes. that it's not the case, but I'm not so sure about that. No. Education expert and policy fellow at the Mitchell Institute, Victoria University's Bronwyn Hines' verdict on the Coalition's new money is that the new money is just the result of ditching the paltry CPI index rate introduced by the Abbott government in favour of a slightly higher education-specific indexation rate of 3.56%, which is still below the higher indexation rates up to 4.7% that the Coalition removed in its 2014 budget. This funding package is better described as a partial restoration of the funding cuts of 2014. Well, that's putting it very nicely, isn't yes. it? <laughs> so who's promising more money? Labor has promised $4.5 billion over two years from 2018 to 2019, compared with the Coalition's $1.2 billion over three years. Labor states its funding will include $1.8 billion in regional and country classrooms for Australian schools. And if we have if we have a depression, uh, then that will certainly be pie in the sky, won't it? Mm, mm. Definitely. Uh, Labor is definitely promising more cash, but the catch with this policy is that Labor cannot determine exactly where that money is spent, rural or city, because it is up to the states to determine where the money goes based on their measurements of needy schools. Hines says Labor can say they're allocating that much, but the Commonwealth doesn't have final say on funding any school gets. For example, New South Wales and Tasmania have put more money into needier schools first up, whereas Victoria has dribbled the funding out to all schools more evenly. It is for the states and territories to decide where the money goes best. So when Labor promises a certain amount to your local school, it is not in the bank yet. The Coalition says, while Bill Shorten has promised more money for schools, Labor is ignoring the decades of significant funding growth yet declining performance. The coalition argument against Labor's larger school funding promises that have been in place since the Gonski reforms has been that increased funding has not produced results. But the catch here is the results were based on a NAPLAN results which only included the first year, uh, that's 2014, of the increased needs-based Gonski funding. In the first year, schools received their smallest amount as the funding agreements grew over time. For example, New South Wales schools had received 3% of their Gonski funding in 2014, 9% in 2015, and 18% in 2016. Very interesting. Well, uh, the dogs have always said that this election was going to be an education election. And if you listen to Stephen Knott uh, from the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, we'll play this. It's his video. Uh, it is a video, but we'll listen to what he has to say. Uh, the media seem to think that it is going to be public school election, not a private school election, not a private school auction, which we've had for so long, 50 years. This is going to be a public school auction. All we have to really fight for is that they don't auction off our public systems. But here is Stephen Knott. With an election campaign only months away and reform of the Federation at the top of the agenda, the political debate is turning back to two issues voters always nominate as among the most important to them, health and education. And in education, no area is more important to voters than the schools where they send their kids. Labor got off on the front foot early this year with its plan for school funding. 
the opposition is promising to fund the final two big spending years of the Gonski school funding deals it struck when it was last in office. This would cost $4.5 billion over two years. It is also promising not to go ahead with the coalition's planned reductions to school funding, which amount to about $30 billion over the next decade. But Labor has been criticised by the government and even some Labor premiers for not outlining a clear plan on how it will pay for its promises. It also hasn't explained exactly how all that extra money will lead to improvements in our kids' results. For its part, the Coalition has tried to shift the debate away from the question of money to the issues it says really matter, pointing to its record in government of improving teacher standards for new teachers and also putting more rigour into the national curriculum. As for funding, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has outlined a bold plan for the federal government to step back from funding public schools and only fund Catholic and independent schools. The states would take over full responsibility for funding their schools by raising a new share of income tax. When you boil it down to the raw politics, there's long been a view in Canberra that no matter how much money it spends, the coalition will never be able to match Labor on the issue of schools. So perhaps it will try and get through the election campaign by focusing on Malcolm Turnbull's record as an economic manager without schools being the issue that matters to voters. Well, there is a difference, a very real difference between the Coalition and the Labor Party, but there is also a considerable wastage of money because the Labor Party uh, is scared stiff of ever getting the private schools offside. There is this strange myth that uh, Mr Latham mentioned that that wealthy private schools shouldn't get state aid, and that did him in. It's a myth. In fact, his ratings went up when he said that. Mr Latham's problems were caused by the loggers in Tasmania, and Tasmania's have uh, have their own way of dealing with people they don't like. So they dealt very well with Mr Latham. But this is a bit different. The situation has changed. The Save Our Schools people in Canberra, and the dogs often give you their facts and figures, their facts and figures are very interesting indeed because the situation has actually been reached where the private schools cost the taxpayer more than the public schools. And uh, we have the Fairfax Papers taking this up, particularly in The Age, but also in The Herald. So we have a very interesting article by Carolyn Webb in, on Monday, May the 16th, Anger over private versus public school gap. Now, listeners, we know that this is uh, a fact. Many private schools, particularly Catholic schools, are actually getting more in taxpayer funding than their local public schools. And, of course, if you look at the uh, exemptions or what you call the taxation expenditures, they're getting a great deal more. But Carolyn Webb... Uh, has been looking, obviously, at um, the work done by Trevor Cobald in in Canberra. And Trevor, as a Productivity Commission man, uh, is pretty good. He's gone AWOL for the election, so I'm not quite sure what he's up to, but uh, Bonner is still working on his media part of the website. 
So Save Our Schools have not completely gone to ground for the election. But their figures are out there and the media are using them. And we're told that government funding to private schools has increased at twice the rate of funding to public schools, a new union analysis of my school data shows. This is the teachers' union. The Australian Education Union Federal President, Karina Haythorpe, has slammed the Turnbull government's plan to scrap the needs-based Konsky funding model after 2017. Now, listeners, as we've explained many times on this program, the dogs are not pro-Gonski. As far as they're concerned, Gonski is a voucher system. But Gillard, to get something done, said that Gonski had to give money to all the schools, even the wealthy. So there is, in fact, a great wastage of money in education. It's just not the wastage that Mr Turnbull says it is because the money is going to the wrong schools. Now, Karina uh, Haythorpe, who is the president of the Australian Education Union, has said that the move would fail students and further entrench inequity. That's to that's Turnbull's decision to do away with the Holgonsky model of so-called need. The analysis, using the most recent My School data, shows that between 2009 and 2014, the combined states and federal government annual funding for independent schools rose by $1,911 per student an increase of 30.3%, not adjusted for inflation. But funding for public schools only rose by 1539 per student, an increase of only 14.6%. For Catholic schools, funding rose by 2,332 per student, an increase of 30.2%. And Ms Haythorpe said the figures highlighted the importance of implementing the full six years of Gonski funding without which the system would regress. So, of course, Simon Birmingham has to come back with his figures, doesn't he? He said that Labor and the unions were selectively using data to peddle a scare campaign. Now, listeners, if you want to look at some very interesting figures, they are up on our website on our press release 655, and I read some of them out in the last two weeks. And there you will see that up in, particularly in Victoria, in the Castle Main area and other places in Victoria, the local Catholic school is actually getting, just in straight figures, considerably more per student than the local public school. And we're very, very grateful to a retired teacher who went on to the internet and looked at the My School data and got the figures out. And this is the very interesting thing. We can now get the figures out of the My School data. We can't be certain that these schools are telling the truth. The Auditor General decided that Mr Elder and the Catholic Education Office had been... um, not cooking the books, but had been diverting money uh, to advantaged children at the expense of disadvantaged children. So they were not doing what they should do with the money that they received uh, for uh, the children. But the public school students we read received significantly more, according to Birmingham, 
total government funding per student than what goes to private school students. Well, in many cases, this is no longer the case. And of course, if you look at uh, some of the uh, larger private schools, have a look at Haleybury, which, by the way, now has four campuses, one set up near Beijing. Um, these, these schools are in a for-profit mode and the, uh, the profits are, are quite uh, substantial. But the way they treat their teachers is another matter. Now, Peter Martin, in The Age, on May the 19th, that uh, first one that I read was on the 16th, so there's quite a lot coming into the, um, the papers about the public-private school issue. Peter Martin uh, says that there are failing grades for both sides on the education policy and the dogs are inclined to agree with him. He says that something's seriously wrong when private school students get more in government support than the government's own students. I'll read that again because... Uh, Bonner and Cobald have been doing their work on the MySchool website and we have Ms Gillard to thank for the MySchool website. It doesn't have everything. It doesn't have the investments, for example, of the private schools, but it does have the actual information about the taxpayers' money that they received because um, that is in the public domain. The rest, of course, they would argue is commercial incompetence. And if it's commercial incompetence, that then kind of they are commercial. Your business, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, but uh, they say they're not for profit, of course, and they are charitable institutions and therefore must get uh, exemptions from taxation. But uh, Peter Martin is, is calling it for what it is. The... Uh, Private school students are getting more in government support than the government's own students, just as it is when private superannuants get more in government support than the government's own pensioners. And this is happening. And neither side of politics wants to talk about it. You can check out examples in your own suburb by scouring the MySchool website. And that's what um, some of our listeners have been doing on our behalf, and we're very grateful for it. In Baldwin, the government-run Baldwin Primary gets 7214 of government funds per student, while down the road, the privately-run St Bede's Parish Primary gets 7974 So that's a difference of about $700 per student. Which is about 10% at least. Yeah. yeah. That's quite a large amount. Yeah. Yes, it is when, when you add up all mm. the students. In Preston, the Newlands Primary School gets $10,362 per student um, and this would be on a needs basis with their so-called ICSIA rating, mm-hmm. uh, which is the, um, the income and the economic situation of the parents. But Sacred Heart down the road gets 11488 so that's a difference of, of well over a thousand, ten thousand three hundred and sixty two to eleven thousand four hundred and eighty eight. Yeah. And I doubt very much whether uh, they would be needier than the children in the Preston Primary School. No. In Spotswood, Spotswood Primary 
gets $8,008 per student, while St Margaret Mary's up the road gets 11397 This is getting better. There you've got a difference of about um, 3000 3, per child. That's a lot of money. It's like 40% difference. Yep. Now, if we go to Ballarat, we'll find the Ballarat North Primary gets $8,158 per student, but St Patrick's up the road gets 8499 So there's only $300 difference there. Now, that's by no means a complete list in the same way as the list that our other researcher gave us is not a complete list and it does differ between states. But the schools he's mentioned are roughly matched for size and socioeconomic status. And right now, on average, Catholic and independent private schools get less per student than government schools, if you take it all over, um, or appear to, because, of course, nobody ever looks at that um, iceberg under the surface, which is the exemptions or taxation expenditures. But if the present trends continue, they'll overtake government schools in four years. And some of them already have, of course. Now, an analysis by a former president of the New South Wales Principals Council, Chris Bonner, and those of you who follow us on 3CR will often hear the dogs quote Chris Bonner, and his education researcher, Bernie Shepherd, have produced a book entitled Private School, Public Cost, and they find that by 2020, the typical Catholic student will receive $850 more, this is in taxpayers' funds, not their fees, than the typical government student and the typical independent school student will receive $100 more than the uh, public school student. It'll lend an entirely different meaning to the word independent. Well, listeners, it has for a long time. Dogs have said that they refuse to call them independent. We call them dependent schools because that's what they are. And it also should bury for good the argument that parents who pay extra to send their children to private schools are doing other taxpayers a favour. So dependent are private schools already that 95% get more in government grants than they spend on teachers' salaries and they either raise very little extra from parents, typically the case for Catholic schools, or they raise a lot more and use it for facilities that are the envy of their public school neighbours. And, of course, up our way around North Melbourne, um, the local school is so desperate for students that they go around offering people scholarships to just come in the front doors of their schools. Um, I don't think they tell them that the local uh, priest is opposite, but never mind. It began very quietly, all this money. Uh, for private schools, he says, well, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, I was around when we were jumping up and down about it in the 60s, I can tell you. For more than 100 years, until the mid-1960s, Australia treated private schools the same way as other developed countries did. It didn't fund them. And then Prime Minister Menzies broke the ice with grants for science labs and, and the Prime Minister Whitlam wanted his DLP vote he had his price, so we had his wonderful needs policy, which enabled 
millions and billions of dollars to go to the Catholic education offices, which we now discover have not been sending the money to the need to the needy. Well, Ray Nielsen discovered that in the 1970s and 1980s and used to put full-page advertisements in the paper. And they never, nobody ever took any notice of it. But finally, finally, the, the penny is starting to drop. Now, uh, Minister Howard turbocharged the process with a new formula that took no account of the money private schools got from other sources and a new kind of grant for the establishment of new private schools. So in the space of a decade, Australia has gained an extra 127 private schools, some of which are very small, and all entitled to establishment grants and ongoing public support. Now, Julia Gillard's 2011 Gonski review found a mess. When considered holistically, the current funding arrangements for schooling are unnecessarily complex, lack coherence and transparency, and involve a duplication of funding. It wasn't just a duplication of funding listeners, it was a, an outrageous duplication of facilities. And now in in Melbourne itself, in inner Melbourne, we have people who do not have the choice of a public school to send their children to, particularly in the Docklands area. I oh, don't worry, they've got Haleybury, but yes. they haven't got a public school and they're up in arms. But the history has shown that people have always had to fight to get an education, a public education for their children, so there's nothing new about this and I have a great faith in the public school parents. Now, in public schools, the money, one would hope, would all be provided by governments, state and federal. Well, we know that's not the case. Many parents put up a great deal of money, particularly at fairs and lamington drives and so on. And there's a whole lot of so-called voluntary fees these days. Indeed. Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) I've got grandchildren and... uh, uh, when the money runs out, um, the, the bills come under my door. Uh, private schools attended by students from poor socioeconomic backgrounds, well, we know there's not too many of them, and Robert's always on about this, so very, very few of them there are at places like Scots and even in the Catholic schools, um, they would be told to find 10% themselves. Private schools attended by students from good backgrounds would have to find 75 to 85%, they say. Well, that's not what's happening. The one big problem was that Gillard decreed that no school would lose a dollar and it made Gonski outrageously expensive. So it's a bit like, uh, I think it's that biblical story where the lady came to Jesus and wanted him to cure her daughter and he said, well, you're the wrong sort, you're a Samaritan, you're not, you're not a Jew. And she said, oh, but even the dog gets the crumbs from the table. So these people obviously think that public schools and poor children should get the crumbs. Uh, But things have got worse, of course, since uh, Gillard. After initially causing mischief, his education spokesman, Christopher Pine, labelled the idea Konsky. Tony Abbott, however, did promise a unity ticket. Do you remember? Mm. One of his uh, very strange uh, promises that was very, very quickly broken. 
He said that he would honour Labor's agreements with the states for at least four years, even though they lasted for six years. And after his election, all of that was quickly forgotten. But since then, things have got much, much worse and the figures are out in the open and we have. And, and this was unheard of, listeners. This was really unheard of until very recently that a, a reporter from the Fairfax media would feel free to write this. Uh, we had to put full-page advertisements in the paper uh, in times gone by, the dogs, to expose what was really happening to public money and the complete lack of accountability. But let's have a bit of a break and some music. We'll have some bark. Let's have Contrapuntus 3. That was uh, Bach's The Art of Fugue, Contrapunctus III. Um, it's all very logical. Bach is very logical, which is more than you can say for the education and the political situation in Australia at the moment. But I'd like to take you over to, to London because privatisation of education does not give security of tenure to teachers or students. The Acacia College debacle up at uh, Bridge Inn Road in Munda is one example of a private religious school that just went belly up. 
and in the end uh, cost $76 million, I think, and a lot of churches had to be auctioned off to pay for it. Uh, you have to have big, big, big money like the Roman Catholic Church to, to run these uh, private systems. However, people who are developers who fancy themselves quite like the idea of having in England an academy named after themselves. And here's a very interesting example of such a person. A man called Richmond Desmond is going to build a school as part of a London development and it will almost certainly be an academy. And in fact, the building of this school uh, as part of a one square metre foot redevelopment of his old West Ferry Printworks site in London's upmarket Docklands area uh, is a requirement for his development. And this school's going to sit among a mixed commercial and residential development comprising nine towers of up to 30 floors. I didn't know that London had enough rock underneath it to have these big, 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 big skyscrapers. And it's going to contain 722 homes, retail and office spaces, cafes, restaurants and public open spaces. Now, Boris Johnson, I think he's the Brexit man, isn't he? Yes. Uh, he's the um, very flamboyant mayor of London. Soon to be ex-mayor. Soon to be ex-mayor because I think he's going into Parliament, or he thinks he uh, is. Well, they've just had an election and he didn't win, so... Oh, well, yes. he's out on the street, or he might be buying one of these apartments. <laughs> well, he approved the development in one of his last acts as the London mayor after seizing control of planning authority from Tower Hamlets Council. And building the school, he says, is a condition of the planning permission. So if this new school is going to be an academy, which is really one of Mr Pine's independent public schools, which is publicly funded, of course, mm -hmm. but run privately, then according to the Times, it's understood that this media billionaire developer who once owned a niche interest in adult magazines, wants to call it the Richard Desmond Academy. So there you are. They're going to have a private school amongst these 30-floored developments with 722 homes. I don't know how many children will be in them, but there will be a few. And uh, they're worried about the big housing estates. Market experts have said that Desmond stands to make a fortune off the development, which could be worth as much as £750 million when it's completed. He already owns the freehold on the site, for which he's estimated to have spent about £30 million, and the construction costs are expected to be t between £250 and £300 million. But he's starting to lose money, and it may never happen. Ah which means all part of it might happen yeah. and the school might go belly up. I'm sure it will be the first thing to go belly up. But he seized control, Boris Johnson seized control of the planning authority for the site in February and Desmond was granted permission in April. It was initially rejected by the council, you see, for failing to include enough affordable housing and would not in achieve a mixed and balanced community because just 11% of the housing proposed, which is close to the Canary Wharf Financial District, is classed as affordable. Now, it's got a few snags. There's a lot of people who don't want it. 
and De- Desmond has got to pay out 546000 to the Dockland Sailing and Water Sports Centre Club. <laughs> the club aren't too happy. And Davis's biggest fear was that the change in wind conditions would put customers off coming to the club, which operates as a charity and provides subsidised sailing courses for disadvantaged young people. Oh, he does have some philanthropic yes. uh, feelings. But he says, we're not funded by anyone and we have to find our own funds. And if people don't come down for sailing, we don't make any money through that, which means we can't provide the youth activities we do in the summer. So the sailing club are not happy with Desmond and uh, he has to pay them out. And, of course, if he goes belly up, then you could end up with quite a few houses with people in them and no school. Mm-hmm. And this happened initially in Mernda. Mernda had and has already the Ivanhoe Grammar, the Plenty Valley Christian School, and then it had the Acacia College, but the Acacia College went belly up. However, the parents in that area and all of those new new houses out there got together and demanded a new school. And to be fair to the uh, state government, they are in the process of building a P to 12 uh, school. However, it's a private-public partnership, which means that the taxpayers, the children themselves when they get jobs, if they get jobs, will be in hock to the builders of their school. So the public foots the bill, the private industry takes the profits. That's the way it is these days. But um, people are actually getting a little bit a little bit fed up with all of this. And the interesting thing, of course, is that even Mr Kennett, who yes. was the one who was responsible for Transurban and the shocking contract that was signed in the first place, is now saying that Mr Andrews would be crazy to uh, give the same contract again. Well, this is the time, and we, we read this out a week or so ago, we, we showed you how Kenneth Davidson is arguing that it is, in fact, much, much better to borrow money and build genuine public facilities that are owned and controlled by the public through our bureaucracies. But unfortunately, uh, our bureaucracies have been underfunded, underpaid, and they have lost their corporate memory. But not all of us are young bloods. Some of us actually have a memory, and we remember that there was great wealth in this country which belonged to us. We paid for it and it was part of the public good and uh, we want our, our children to inherit that. But that is enough for us today and we really are very grateful that you've allowed us into your kitchen or your dining room or wherever your radio is and we hope that you'll be back with us at 12 midday next week. So it's bye for now.
In Salt Lake City, just as I am standing by my bed, they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. Well, that was uh, Bach's The Art of Fugue, Contrapunctus Three. Um, it's all.